So, uh, where were we? Ukrainian orienteering champion, Pavlo Ushkarok, and the actor Eugene Braverock, as seen in the 2017 motion picture Wonder Woman, are both currently sweating it out, ten floors underground, on the lowest level of the Q-Vault security facility in Adelaide, Australia. Both men are disguised as Norwegian oil barons. They are, of course, here, under false pretenses. The two men now stand at the entrance to the facility's bullion vault, along with the account manager, Jeffrey. Security cameras watch them from all sides. Eugene feels their lenses, the close-ups tightening around his eyes, searching for the slightest breaking character. Jeffrey steps into the vault. So, here we are. The door is a Hamilton, stainless steel, self-closing. The walls have a resistance grade of three, giving it a breach time of over 120 minutes. Right on cue. The entire building loses power. The bullion vault's backup generator automatically kicks in. Its independent security system resets. The steel door automatically swinging closed, with Jeffrey trapped inside. And here we are again. In total darkness. Not a shred of light, not a single LED on this entire level, nor the nine underground levels above it. Until the power is restored, the two men have the Q-Vault labyrinth all to themselves. The rest of the security team are trapped back at ground level. The Adelaide blackout of 2017 lasted 45 minutes, but no one is expecting such luck this time. It could be 10 minutes, maybe less, till the lights return. Eugene waves his hand around, looking for Pavlo's shoulder. You still there? Says Eugene. Yeah, says Pavlo. Right then, you're up, mate. Go on, clock's ticking. The two men jog back up the corridor, their smart shoes clopping against the concrete. Pavlo in front, Eugene close behind, his hand on Pavlo's shoulder. For some reason, Pavlo thinks back to 2013. His bronze medal win at the IOF World Orienteering Championships in Finland. There was a moment in the final stretch of his relay leg where everything seemed to fall away. The sound of the crowd, the shock of the tarmac, the wind in the pines, even his pulse faded away to nothing. For the final minutes of that race, all that remained was the geometry. Now Pavlo looks for that feeling again. Despite his speed, he closes his eyes. And I used to him anyway. And Q-Vault's labyrinth architecture slowly unfolds in front of him like a flower head dropped into a bowl of water. Within three minutes, Pavlo has retraced their steps all the way back to that mysterious power cable he noticed earlier. Even though he can't see the cable in the darkness, Pavlo knows it's up there, running along the ceiling. He follows it now, listening for the hum of electricity. And Jana told them that the cryo room would definitely have its own backup generator in order to keep the vapor phase LN2 freezers at precisely minus 190 Celsius. Thankfully, the power cut has already disabled the magnetic door lock. Eugene grabs a pair of tongs and removes the cassette of blood from the freezer. 
Pavlo takes off his suit, revealing a paramedic uniform beneath. Eugene slots the blood cassette into a chunky plastic lunchbox previously hidden on Pavlo's belt. They shove Pavlo's discarded suit into the freezer, and then it's back to the pitch black maze once more. Pavlo leading them all the way back to that first staircase. The security door at the top of the stairs is perma-locked till the power grid reboots. On the other side of that door, nine security guards and four clerks are currently waiting for the power to return. Eugene climbs the staircase while Pavlo retreats around the corner to hide. When Eugene reaches the top of the stairs, he takes position right behind the security door. He can even make out the muffled voices of security on the other side. Soon as the power returns, first priority is to locate those two Norwegian lads, okay? Eugene plants his feet and works through some stretches, limbering up his neck and shoulders. They were just outside the bull safe when we lost visuals, but they could have wandered anywhere by now. Eugene touches his toes a few times, then does a couple of star jumps. I want them found, I want them searched, and I want them questioned. No civilian leaves this facility without my express say-so. Understood. 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 Eugene does some running on the spot. Stops. Exhales. He cracks his knuckles. And takes position. Cut to the ambulance across the street. Where Anjana and I sit waiting. The radio is still on. But instead of Nova 91.9... It now broadcasts the constant coastal roar of static. And Jana has a pair of binoculars trained on the lobby window across the street. Security guards are nervously milling about inside. Nothing yet, says Anjana. Shit, I say. Anjana hands me the binoculars. If we don't get that blood back into the deep freeze in the next three fucking minutes... All seven of us are going to be as fucked as a monkey's. Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty suddenly bursts through the radio. Every shop front flickers back to life before our eyes. And Jenna starts the engine. Thank God, not a moment too soon. Okay, it's going to stretch the credibility a bit, but we don't have time. Okay, let's go, let's go. Cut to Eugene as power returns to the security door. Eugene steps forward. The door flies open. A stuntman never forgets how a cellar fall. And Eugene Braverock, who, along with his brother, trained over 20 stuntmen on the set of The Revenant, who was once known as the most killed actor on AMC's Hell on Wheels, can cellar fall like no other. Even with no camera cuts. Even when your audience is two feet from your face, rushing through a door towards you. It's actually Eugene's shoe that stops the door from swinging. But the stuntman clutches his head as he staggers backwards over the lip of the top step. It's his eyes that seal the deal. Widening with fear, burning into the guard's brain. Eyes that say... What have you done to me, you dickhead? The panicked guard stumbles forward, reaching for Eugene's outstretched hand, but the stuntman rolls away from it. Even gravity is performative, at least to a point. Eugene tucks in his head as the staircase rolls across his spine. Once, twice, he slaps out his arm as he reaches the bottom trying to absorb the worst of the impact across his shoulders by the time his body finally comes to rest. The performance has built quite an audience. What the fuck did you do, Terry? Says one guard. He was right behind the door. I didn't see him. Says, presumably, Terry. Cut to the lobby. A guard runs to the phone and dials triple zero. Ambulance. I need an ambulance right away. Before the guard can even 
give the address, and Janet and I are already entering the lobby, carrying a stretcher. We were already in the neighbourhood, says Anjana, as the guards buzz us through the security gate. The guards lead us down to Eugene, playing unconscious at the bottom of the stairs. The guards still insist on searching him as we heft him onto the stretcher. Um, Mr Friendly, says one guard to Eugene. What happened to your associate? Did you get separated? He's unconscious, sweetheart, I say, pushing the guard aside. That's what happens when you throw millionaires down flights of stairs. They lose consciousness. Now, unless you're looking for further damages, step aside and let us do our job yet. As we carry the stretcher back up the stairs, Pavlo emerges from his hiding place and helps us with the heavy end. Together, the three of us rush the stretcher back through the lobby, through the security gate, and straight into the back of the ambulance, where, waiting for us, is a portable liquid nitrogen vapour freezer designed to look like a large holiday suitcase. With rubber gloves and tongs, Pavlo retrieves the blood cassette from the bum bag cooler on his belt, transfers the blood into the cryo case, and... Stop the clock. God bless us, everyone. Ten minutes later. The ambulance is en route to Adelaide Airport for our flight to London. The exchange has been arranged for 5pm tomorrow, Greenwich Mean Time. Eugene is off the stretcher, sitting with me and Pavlo in the back, and Jana behind the wheel. I go to check in with the Oslo team. Hi, we're, we're still at the conference. Whispers Rolf. What? You and Norma should be at the airport by now. Kate fingered us before I could slip his phone back. Now every fucking policeman in the conference is looking for us. Currently we're hiding out in a steam room, but... Contrary to what they say about steam rooms, it's not fucking helping our nerves. Uh, you gotta do something. Okay, don't worry. Uh, as long as you're not in custody... We can still help you. I, I, I just need a second to, um... Down the phone, I listen to the sound of Noma and Rolf being jumped on by 10 to 12 Norwegian police officers. I hang up. All right. I say to the rest of the crew. Uh, bad news from Team Oslo. Our Magnificent Seven may well be down to a furious five, but um... Eugene doesn't even look up, his eyes glued to a video on his phone. You lot, says Eugene, you need to take a look at this. On Eugene's screen, a local news report, shaky camera footage of the Nova 91.9 building zooms in to show Ben Harvey climbing out the fifth floor window and edging along a narrow railing. This footage was recorded at 9am this morning, says the anchor. According to an unnamed source, Harvey was attempting to escape from police officers who wanted to question him regarding an on-air prank that is alleged to be the source of a power blackout in central Adelaide this morning. Sensitive viewers are advised to... Ben slips, plunging 75 feet to the ground. Too late, says the anchor. Sorry, I should have started with the viewer warning. Um, that one's on me, sorry. Eugene drops the phone in despair. What's going on back there? Says Anjana from the driver's seat. It's Ben. I say. He's cocked it. I guess he must have panicked. I know he would have got a rap on the knuckles for the power cut, but no one would have tied him to the Dickens job. Fuck. We're dropping like fucking pricks. What's going on? Don't raise your voice, says Eugene. You're upsetting Pavlo. I turn around to see that Pavlo has gone red as a beetroot. He gives me a meek thumbs up, then slumps out of his chair onto the floor. Oh, shit. I say. I think, I think he's having a heart attack. We've got to take him to the hospital, says Anjana. We move Pavlo onto the stretcher. His face keeps moving between a pale pink and an ashy muted grey, the kind of colours you'd get in a fancy restaurant in the 80s. And Jana pulls up outside the hospital. Just wheel him in the front door, says Anjana. What do I have 
to wheel him in. I say. Because, says Anjana, Eugene just threw himself down a flight of stairs and I'm driving a fucking ambulance. All right, all right, I say. But I'm taking the blood with me. I grab the wheelie suitcase with the cryo fridge in it and haul it out the back of the ambulance. I'm about to climb back on board to grab Pavlo when a police siren comes over the hill. I bang on the side of the ambulance. Mr. fucking Bennies! We got a scarper, go, go, go! I grab the suitcase and go to jump back into the ambulance, but Anjana takes off at such a speed, I end up landing on my ass in the middle of the road. Meanwhile, the ambulance rockets over the middle of the roundabout, hits a curb, slides down an embankment, then bursts into flames. Camera close up on my stunned face as the entire rest of my team goes up in smoke. I feel my knees buckling beneath me, my heart collapsing in on itself. What the shitting fuck just happened to us? Pavlo, Eugene, and Jana, Ben, Rolf, Noma. It took every single one of you guys to pull this thing off. And not just someone like you guys, but specifically, literally, you guys. You. No other six humans on this planet could have done this job. And now, for better or worse, we understand our lives through our jobs, through the verb in us, through what we do. And we also know that the bigger the team that we work with, the more colleagues we have, the more complex, more substantial the outcomes are that we can produce but when you bring together a random group of people like us people who on paper have very fucking little in common you can collaborate to create new complex purposes the likes of which no one has ever seen before you put all our purposes together and you make a brand new purpose from the pieces if it was a different group of people, it would be a completely different purpose. But for us, it was stealing a small thimble-sized volume of Charles Dickens' blood from a high-security vault in Australia. And say what you like about that. Whatever you think of that. No one's ever done that before. And it is possible that I... that I overweight the importance of novelty. That, that's true. But, you know, at the very least, it's better than being bored, isn't it? I watch the smoke as it rises from the ambulance. A straight black column. No wind today, yeah, that's unusual. Orderlies from the hospital start running towards the fire until a further explosion knocks them on their backs. Well, I think. I suppose I'll donate everyone else's share of the loot to the to the charity of their choice, or you know, at least what I think the charity of their choice might have been. It, you know, if, if we'd ever had that conversation. Oh yeah, where was that police car I heard? Must have gone off in another direction after all that. Bloody hell! I call over a taxi and heave the suitcase into the boot. I realize the suitcase has a picture of the Lausanne skyline across it. The Alps zigzag across the lid. And Jana must have added that detail at the last minute to make the case seem less conspicuous. I swallow back the lump in my throat. Um, to the airport, please. Big bag you got there? Says the driver. Going on holiday? Going home, actually. Yeah, thought I detected a bit of a foreign accent. Where are you from? Um, good question, driver. I think it's hard to say exactly, but, um... Well, I, I, I'm gonna guess I'm vaguely from somewhere between Essex and London. You sad to be going home? Says the driver. Well, put it this way. I say. Certainly can't stay here any longer. The film fades to black.
Now, fade in on the upstairs room of a pub. Caption, Camden, London. It's still light outside, maybe early afternoon. The pub looks closed. All the tables and chairs have been stacked away in the corners of the room, except one table left in the middle and two chairs either side of the table. In one of those chairs, me. In the other chair, no one. I'm the only person in the room. I keep one hand resting on the travel case. Occasionally, I pop up the wheelie handle, then I slot it back in again. It's a fun thing to do when you're nervous. After a while, footsteps on the stairs. Quite a lot of people on the stairs, it seems. Each wearing an ill-fitting pleather jacket and a rubber mask of Jason Statham, the heavies squeeze through the door and arrange themselves menacingly around the room. Some of the masks look quite perished, like they've been through the wash a couple of times. Not only does this make the Stathams look considerably more ghoulish, but you have to ask yourself, what exactly are these boys getting on their masks to necessitate a 40 degree wash? Feeling the change in atmosphere, I try to pacify the boys with a little bit of my trademark hypno-cockney. Hello, boys. I say. Unless there's a cabbage in my treehouse, I think the tickle party is next door. I mean, call me Margaret, but I thought we were chinning some mustard today. Not horse in a French Mary Poppins. Shut the fuck up. A familiar voice coming up the stairs. A man in a naval jacket and scarf enters the room. Tell me, Ross, why is it that so many people think they can play me at my own fucking game? Freeze frame. Caption. Hello, guy. I say. Yeah, fuck off. Says Richie. Listen, Ross, uh, before you get any bright ideas, I've, um, I've already informed my boys here that uh, should you rise even a centimetre out of that chair, they're authorised to punch you in the face with a bullet. So, just wanted to make sure we're clear on that. Uh, yeah, guy, we're absolutely clear. I say. We're so clear, we're... We're Julian Cleary. Guy Ritchie plops himself into the seat opposite. Well? Says Ritchie. Well what? I say. Do you mean well what? Says Ritchie. Do you get it or didn't you? I want to meet Gonzo. Gonzo? I say. Gonzo's right here, mate. Patting the travel case. Yeah, don't you worry about Gonzo. What about the money? Seven sports bags. Says Guy. Each bag containing 2.8 million. A couple of the Stathams heaved the bags into the middle of the room. Hang on. I say. How am I supposed to walk out of here with seven bags? Uh, it was supposed to be one for each of your crew, says Richie. 20 million is a lot of fucking banknotes. Why haven't you worked that out? Where is your crew, incidentally? Did something happen to them? Yeah, well, I say. Never mind that. Presumably you want to try the claret. I pull the travel case onto the table and pop on the thermal gloves and tongs. Now careful, I say. This thing's colder than a witch's tit. I hold up the Charles Dickens blood cassette so Richie can see it. So what? I say. You got a DNA guy with you? How are you going to verify it's the real Charles? I must admit I never quite understood how this part of the exchange was going to work. I'm not testing it, says Guy. I'm going to take you on your word, actually, Ross. Pop it back in a case for me, will ya? You're going to give me 20 mil on good faith, I say. I could have just showed you freezing cold tizer. Well, actually, says Guy. Now that I see you've turned up alone, I'm not going to give you anything. I'm taking Charles Dickens and I'm taking back the money. Guy hands the travel case to a waiting Statham. Go put that in the motor. Tell Jeeves I'll be down in a minute. 
Are you having a wet Rodney? I say. Guy, come on. Listen, you could probably resell that blood on the black market tomorrow for double my fee. It's the fucking lifeblood of the fucking greatest English fucking novelist, for fuck's sake. It's only going to rise in value. This ain't an investment, says Richie. I ain't ever going to sell it. What are you going to do with it then? I say. Swim in it? Yeah, says Richie. Got it in one. That's quite impressive, actually. Yeah, I'm going to swim in it. I recently refurbed the pool back at the manor, so... Yeah, off this sample here, I'm going to synthesise some more. In fact, uh, the whole east wing of the manor is now a synthetic blood lab. You're serious? I say. You're going to swim in Charles Dickens's blood. This is a joke, right? Richie shrugs. I'm told it requires quite a lot of stem cells, but uh, what can I say? It's a big pool. 50 footer. I mean, technically, it's a lap pool. The camera closes in on me as the colour drains from my cheeks. The stathams closing in around me. Listen, Ross, I could leave you with some of the money, but why should I? You, you, you turned up without a crew. No crew means no leverage. It's like you never watched any of my films. It's insulting. Anyway, I'm off now. I'm going to leave you in the confident hands of my private security team, each of which I've given an amusing nickname. Cheese, Tinker, Errol the Tablemaker, Colostomy Bag, Lynx Africa, and the skeleton of Tony Blair. Lads, make sure I never hear from Mr Sutherland or his fucking podcast ever again. One of the Stathams grabs me from behind and puts me in a headlock. I wrestle free and make for the open window. One of them shoots me in the back and I fall to the ground dead. Jesus, boys, says Richie. You could have waited till I was back in the motor. <sighs> All right, well, I'm going to have to get out of here pretty quick now, aren't I? You guys sort all this out and, uh, yeah, I'll see you back here for quiz night on Sunday. All right. Cut to the street outside. Guy Ritchie exits the pub and gets back into his chauffeur-driven Bentley. Everything all right, sir? Says the chauffeur. Couldn't be happier, Jeeves. Says Ritchie. I've got a boot full of Charles Dickens's blood and... Well, with Sutherland dead, I've marginally improved the quality of contemporary audio drama. Let's go up, shall we? Very good, sir. Camera stays fixed until the car is completely gone from view. Then, slowly, fade to black. And now we're back in that darkness again. I don't like to criticise Charles Dickens. But you know, if you're going to call a book Oliver Twist, don't you think the absolute least you could do is make sure your story has a good twist? And Oliver Twist doesn't have a good twist. It's got a shit twist. A twist in Oliver Twist is that, okay, spoilers here, Oliver turns out not to be working class after all. He might have been raised in the workhouse, but it's revealed that he's actually of genteel birth. He's the illegitimate son of Edwin Leaford. The, the, the implication being that this is the reason why Oliver is so delicate and high-minded and well-mannered, despite the fact that he's been brought up surrounded by villainy. It's, it's, it's almost as if Dickens is saying that uh, Oliver just has something special in his blood. Something called nobility. And as a result of that special something, Oliver has already been predetermined to be a good and moral person. I mean, Dickens is overlooking the fact that he's illegitimate, which is still progressive I suppose in some ways Dickens is saying well it doesn't matter how the blood got there but if you have the blood you're golden 
People sometimes forget that this is a plot point. Maybe that's because they often, quite rightly, leave it out of the sort of the TV and film adaptations. But also it makes sense that people will be surprised to hear this because it doesn't quite feel in keeping with the reputation of the novel. I know that the book was instrumental in exposing Dickens's readers to the, the rampant poverty happening right under their noses, their own horrific indifference reflected back at them. But that kind of only makes the twist seem shitter. Like singling out Oliver as special by blood ends up reinforcing the connection between being economically sound and being morally sound. It would have just been better if his bloodline had never come into it. Could he not have just been poor and decent? And you know, he could still get adopted at the end. Or, um, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe Dickens saw it as the only way to give the novel a happy ending, which is depressing, but maybe true. The only way out of the shit stinking labyrinth of poverty is some kind of ludicrous miracle revelation that you have a fucking secret noble bloodline. I mean, the absolute ridiculousness of offering that as a solution. Like, it kind of has to be a joke, doesn't it? Come to think of it, like, almost all of Dickens' happy endings, they do often tend to come about because of some tenuous, reality-breaking miracle in the final act. So maybe we're always supposed to gloss over the happy endings? Because, hang on, is that the point? Is, like, calling the character Twist a way of intentionally drawing attention to the utter fakeness of the twist. Are we are we supposed to discount it almost like it's a it's a dream sequence, like it's something that never actually happened? Because when Oliver gets given the name Twist in the workhouse, the name is just chosen off an alphabetical list of words, isn't it? Before it becomes Oliver's name, the word Twist means nothing. It's 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 valueless, right? Just as a twist in the story is valueless. It means nothing. The twist means nothing. Dickens has been telling us to ignore it right from the very beginning. Fuck, I actually like it now. <laughs> All right, forget I said anything. Anyway. Fade back up on the pub once more. We're seeing through my POV as I look up at the pub ceiling. Mint green paint job. Very soothing. My eyes open and close a few times. One of the Stathams leans over me. The distorted rubber mask folds into an ugly smile. It looks like Jason Statham's pervert uncle. Alright, dickhead? Says the mask. Have a nice kip, did we? I reach up and pull off the mask, revealing... Two-time Lawrence Olivier award-winning actor, Noma Domezwini. What an uh, I done, her? I say. Easy, mate, says Noma. When Injana had you in a headlock just now, she, uh, she stuck your bum with a pretty heavy sedative. Save. I say. Well, says Noma, once Eugene detonated those squibs in your jacket, we really needed you to drop like a stone. I look down. My chest is covered in blood. Noma sighs. Like I just said, it's not your blood. Okay. I sit up and try to make both my eyes look in the same direction. The other Stathams remove their masks, revealing the rest of my crew. Some of them have even found the time to get funky new haircuts. Oh my god. I say. You sly pricks. Okay, you got exactly two and a half minutes to try and explain this to me. <laughs> Cut back to one week ago, back to a hotel room in Switzerland. Ben holding a mic up to Noma and Rolf. We need a new exit plan. Whispers Rolf. Ben taps his laptop, adding in the sounds of the pair being ambushed by police as Noma and Rolf slap themselves with pillows, yelling, No! Oh, no! Not the face! Cut to a few days later in Adelaide, Eugene, dressed as Ben, climbs out onto the ledge of the Nova 91.9 office while Ben films the footage from below on his camera phone. On cue, Eugene dives from the high ledge into a hidden pile of cardboard boxes. 
Now, cut to Ben on his laptop, editing the phone footage to look like a news report. Noma recording the voice of the news anchor. According to an unnamed source, she says, Harvey was attempting to escape from police officers. Cut now to the day of the heist. Me and Jana, Eugene and Pavlo escaping the black stump in our second-hand ambulance. I put in the call to Rolf. However, instead of being trapped in a sauna, we see that, in fact, Rolf and Noma are actually already on the plane to England. Seeing my call incoming, Rolf pulls out the cable he used earlier to redirect Peter Keefe's phone to my laptop and now uses the same cable to redirect my call through to Ben Harvey's laptop, who, rather than being pate on the pavement outside Nova 91.9, is actually in a nearby cafe wearing a fake Poirot moustache, assembling the audio of the fake sauna arrest scene on a fly. Cut back to the ambulance. As long as you're not in custody, while I'm distracted listening to Noma and Rolf's arrest, Eugene loads up the video on his phone of the fake news footage. You look, you need to take a look at this. Then, while I'm watching fake Ben fall to his fake death, and Jana passes a syringe to Pavlo, who injects himself with a sedative, slowing his heart rate. Oh shit! While I'm trying to haul Pavlo onto the stretcher, Eugene swaps out the original travel case for a ringer, identical to the case containing the frozen blood. Except this second case contains a nice decal of the Swiss Alps on the front of it. Cut now to outside the hospital, where a portable speaker has been hidden in a bush by the entrance. As I clamber out the back of the ambulance holding the ringer case, and Jana revives Pavlo with a second injection, whilst Eugene climbs into the driver's seat of the ambulance and uses his phone to activate the hidden speaker in the bush outside. As soon as the siren begins to play, Eugene buckles up and floors it, carefully crashing the ambulance just as the trio had rehearsed with plenty of time for all three to escape before detonating the stage explosives in the back. Cut now to one hour later, where Anjana, Pavlo and Eugene are sitting on the exact same plane to London that I was on, just a few seats back from mine, all cunningly disguised in Malcolm Gladwell wigs. When I go for a slash somewhere over Turkey, Eugene pops my overhead locker and replaces my tweed jacket with a duplicate filled with radio-controlled blood squibs. Cut to Heathrow baggage claim. Seconds after I pick up the ringer case from the conveyor belt, and Jana appears and collects the real cryo case. Now, cut to 10 minutes ago, where I was sitting alone in the upstairs room of this boozer, waiting for Guy Ritchie to arrive. Camera falls through the floor to show all six of my crew hiding in the downstairs toilet. Then, when the Statham boys enter the loo for a pre-intimidation piss, the crew burst out, chloroform the thugs, steal their masks and pleather jackets and walk up the stairs to meet me. Once the deal goes south and Jana grabs me, injects me in the bum, I struggle free, Pavlo pulls a fake gun, Eugene clicks the detonator in his pocket and just like that, my life is saved. Okay, I say. I, um, I think I get it. Out of curiosity, though, um, when you switched the travel cases, whose frozen blood ended up in my case, the one that I ended up giving to Richie? Well, says Noma, I know a guy who knows a guy who happens to know a certain Dick Van Dyke. That's actually still not a bad deal, I say. You know, if I was Richie, I'd probably still be happy with that. Anyway, n now I understand how you did it, and I'm obviously glad you did it, but still, why didn't you loop me into the plan? I thought you guys were all dead. I fucking mourned you guys. Also, more importantly, this was my fucking gig. I set it all up. I, I just don't like not being included in everything. Look, says Eugene, I'm sorry, Ross, but you're not an actor. If you'd been in on the plan, you, you might well have tipped Richie. I mean, say what you like about Guy Ritchie, but the man knows acting when he sees it. What are you talking about? I say. I'm actually a very versatile actor, thank you very much. Haven't you heard my podcast? I'm a man of a fucking thousand voices. I wouldn't go that far. Who said that? 
Me? Well, I can't believe you, of all people, would turn against me Oi, like that. Both of you settle down. All right, all right, I say. But I resent the implication that I'm not an equal member of this crew. That's all. But, says Rolf, you are the only member of this crew who doesn't have their own Wikipedia page. Christ, I say. Did you save my life just to insult me a few more times? Look, says Pavlo, all that matters is that we've still got the blood. Pavlo wheels out the real case from its hiding place. And, says Pavlo, throwing me one of Richie's bags. We got Richie's money as well. I throw the bag back to Pavlo. No, we ain't, I say. Go on. Pavlo opens the bag. There's a top layer of 50s, but everything else is just bundled Guardian reviews of the gentleman. You can check the other six bags, but they'll all be the same. So, says Noma, Richie never intended to pay. Didn't you hear him? I say. He said he was going to make a swimming pool of the stuff. All along, his plan was to tank the value. Well, that's on you then, Ross, says Ben. You told us he'd be good for it. That was your promise to us. Yeah, I say. Yeah, you're right. I, I did trust him. You know, when it came to Aladdin, I, I, I just thought he'd delivered on that. I mean, it wasn't to my taste per se, but I mean, I thought that showed he was a safe pair of hands. And, you know, I really like the first Sherlock film. And like, I kind of also love King Arthur, although I do admit that one was batshit. <sighs> uh, yeah, maybe I should have taken that into consideration. I guess I should have never trusted Richie not to fuck up the plot. And that is on me. That's my problem to fix. And I will come up with something, okay? I'll I'll, 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 I'll get us a new buyer, okay? It will just, um, it will just take a bit of time. Um, says Anjana, those lads we chloroformed in the lavies, they're gonna be waking up any minute now. All right, Ross Sutherland, says Eugene, handing me the case. We're trusting you to make this right. You take the case, you find a new client for the sale. You owe each of us 2.85 million, not a penny less. How exactly you get that money to us, we'll have to work that out in time. But right now, we've all got to scatter to the wind. Each of us has just got to walk out of this pub, put our head down and not look back. Deal? Cut to outside. The sun is starting to set now. One by one, our heroes appear in the pub doorway. Take a second to get their bearings, then disappear into the night. Some vanish into alleys, some hail taxis. Finally, last of all, it's my turn to leave. I clatter over the bottom step and start off towards Mornington Crescent Station hauling behind me the insanely heavy travel case that is secretly a cryogenic fridge containing the blood of Charles Dickens. One side street leads to another and soon I am in a labyrinth of dark narrow courts. My pace quickens as if I were being forced along them. Close up on my eyes blinking into the sunset like an idiot as half-formed questions float to the surface of my mind. Questions like, if I never told my crew that Guy Ritchie was the buyer, how did they know where the meeting place was? How did Ben get out of the Nova building after the power cut without being seen? Also, Eugene was helping Ben fake his own death at the exact same time that he was helping me with the final plans for the robbery. How could Eugene be in two places at the same time? The word gene splitting comes into my head, but no, that, that's, that's fucking stupid. The camera swings around to reveal a billboard across the street. It's an advert for the new run of Chicago, opening at Churchill Theatre Bromley next month. Noma 
is on the billboard. She's pointing a gun at the camera. I walk on past the news agents. Outside the shop, a DVD spindle filled with copies of Wonder Woman. A small picture of Eugene Braverock on every cover, the spindle catching the wind, spinning like a zoetrope. I backtrack to a cafe I just passed. A second ago, I swear I saw someone in there who looked a lot like Ben's radio partner, Liam Stapleton. And yet, now that I'm back outside the cafe, the place is closed. Even the sign outside has disappeared. Close up of my pupils widening as the plot begins to spiral out in all directions. Expanding like a fractal, my own coordinate within it shrinking away and nothing. It, 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 it couldn't be. Could it? Could this whole caper have somehow already existed long before I even invented it? Was I the architect of any of it? Or have I simply been reading the lines as they were given to me? Has someone else just fooled me into taking the credit for this shit? I mean, look at me. Drugged, skin, lost in my own fucking city. If this even is my city, I mean, the accent does tend to waver. I can't possibly be the brains of this operation. As I stumble forwards through the streets, we hear Noma's voice overlaid, me recalling the words she said on stage back in New York. In, in essence, it's a prison. Each of us is looking into a prison, yeah? Whatever we choose to see, that's what we'll see. What was it that Rolf said to me back on that bench in Oslo? You're not at peace, Rolf. Yes, I fucking am. I have my ray of light. That's all I need. Ray of light, ray of light, ray of And Anjana, outside her lab in San Diego. Well, Mr. Immaculate Timing. Immaculate, immaculate, immaculate. And that final warning from Noma. Every single performance is basically like a prayer. Like a prayer, like a prayer, like no. a prayer. We'll need a plan so flawless that not even the Virgin Mary herself could see through it. Virgin Mary, Virgin Mary, no. Virgin Mary. Ordering a hot chocolate from that van that Pavlo recommended. The vendor has an eye patch and fingerless gloves. Eye patch, eye patch, eye patch. Sounds a bit like Ma was trying to make you do something you didn't want to do. Ma, Ma. People talk Ma. in prison. My cellmate Donnie. Ma, Donnie, Ma, Donnie, Ma, Donnie. Cut to my face, drenched in sweat, eyes bulging, the buildings swirling around me. What does any of this fucking mean? I smell fresh paint through a crack in a garage door, a car being resprayed. On the other side of the road, a little dog sitting on a stool outside a pizzeria. Is that something? If only Pavlo was here to help me navigate, then again. Maybe everyone's been leading me in the wrong direction from the very start. You are right, mate? Says a man, standing outside a minicab stall. I look down. My suit jacket has come undone, revealing the huge bloodstain across my chest. Uh, yeah. I say. Y yeah, yeah. Uh, don't worry. It's, uh, it's not my blood. Uh-oh, says the man. Whose blood is it then? Uh... Do you know what? I say. I've got... No fucking idea. The man says something else, but we don't hear it. The sound has been muted. But it's too late. I'm the one swimming in blood now. The con turning in on me one last time. Close up on the suitcase handle. 
as I let go. So, you have just heard the final part of this heist mini-series. I hope you liked it. All three parts were written and produced by me, Ross Sutherland, all made exclusively for this podcast, Imaginary Advice. Do you want to help the show? Consider supporting on Patreon. Patreon supporters who give $5 or more get access to a second bonus making-of podcast where I talk about the writing process with a special guest. Alternatively, you can make a one-off donation to buymeacoffee.com forward slash imaginary advice. This show contains no adverts, no sponsors. Imaginary advice is exclusively supported by a small group of listeners, and I would love it if you could help me out, if you can. And I always say... um, with the patron I always give the amount in dollars because that's what it used to be it used to always whatever uh, country you were in it had to be sort of converted into dollars but that's not the case anymore you can pay in pounds sterling or euros or uh, Australian dollars Um, so yeah okay I just thought I'd mention that also this episode contained original music by Jeremy Wormsley for more of Jeremy's music go to jeremywormsley.com Finally all the characters in this show were fictional characters resemblance to anyone alive or dead is purely incidental no one who shares a name with any of these characters would ever ever steal a sample of Rose and Charles Dickens blood nor would any of them double cross me on the deal or do me any harm at all whatsoever this is a work of fantasy and therefore uh, should be ignored by everyone on that note my name is Ross Sutherland Uh, you have been listening to Imaginary Advice